beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this Psalm 147, uh, notice how different it is when we read these psalms as compared to the modern songs of our day. A lot of the modern songs that you find today that are on the radio are that of man-centeredness. They want to speak about man and, and what I do and what I'm doing as I approach the Lord. And it's, it's never a covenant community worship. It is oftentimes solo. It is about me. It's all about me and what I have done. And yet what we find in the Psalms is the psalmist declaring what great things that God has done. It is so different from the mentality of the world in which we live and a lot of the church world in which we live. The Psalms then are a great uh, model, as it were, to teach us how we ought to approach to God, how we sing to Him, how we worship Him. Um, They are a great example if we would cultivate the principles that are found in these Psalms, what you see with the psalmist, in how we come to the Lord in honor and praise to Him. Psalm 147 does just that. There's no author. You can see that in Psalm 147. No author is listed. I don't know who the psalmist is. Um, The Septuagint makes the comment of, uh, it adds this, of Haggai and Zechariah. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, again, that's speculation. It's not mentioned, it's not shown, it's not given to us, so it's just maybe an educated guess. It really doesn't matter because ultimately the author is God. There is a human who penned the words, and God used that. And so as they penned the words, they wrote down exactly what God would have them to write. This is what's called organic inspiration. But nevertheless, you can see here with the psalm that what's important is praise to our God. That's what the psalm is about. Praise to the Lord. Hallel, singing His honor and His glory and His praise for the good things that God has done to His people. Yes, there are those psalms that praise Him for who He is. And we ought to praise Him for who He is. But there are also the psalms that declare to us that we praise God for what He has done. He gives food. Did you notice the the comment there that He gives wheat to His people? He provides food to His people. He protects His people. What you have here in this particular psalm is the Lord building, or as it were, rebuilding Jerusalem by gathering the people of God together again, those that were dispersed and outcast. And so here is the psalmist praising the Lord for restoring His people and bringing them back together again as a people. The Lord continues to do that. He continues to do that as the church as those who have been scattered from the north, the south, the east, and the west, the elect in all the nations, that the Lord brings them together. And as we read in John 10, that there would be one shepherd and one flock, Jew and Gentile brought together as the Lord is building His church. And so you have an allusion here, not only to the nation Israel and to the city of Jerusalem, but you also see the rebuilding of the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Notice he begins this psalm, uh, praise the Lord. 
And praise is uh, the first word there, hallel. It's to exalt. It's to, to make us bursting noise to the Lord. And that's what we are to do as the people of God. We are to boast in Him. So that's why I say there is such a distinction between what you see in the psalmist in the psalms and singing the psalms as compared to the songs of the world. Why is that? I could only say that they are not taking as a model in the hymns that they write or the songs that they put together. They're not taking the psalms as a model for how they put these things together. If they would just do a study of the 150 psalms, they would transform the way that the modern singing goes on in today, the contemporary music. So the first thing that the psalmist says is make your boast in the Lord. We have been created for this, beloved. We have been created by God to sing His praise, to make our boast in Him. We are not to boast in ourselves. Uh, we read that he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Boast that you know Him. Boast in honoring Him, exalting in Him, glorying in Him. You see, sin within us wants it to be about us. We love things to be about us. We love attention. We love recognition. We love acknowledgement. And we like to be the star of the show, the center of all things, that it must be about us, about me. And it's not that way. It's, we're not the center of the universe. You know, primarily, it is all for the glory of God. Secondarily, is our salvation. You realize that? God has created us to honor and glorify Him in all that we think, say, and do. And as believers, we are being restored unto that position. So that one day, perfection is coming, but it's after this life. Where we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where all of our thoughts, all of our words, our actions, the things that we speak, they are going to exalt and honor the God who has bought us. And that's what you find right here in praising the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, uh, the one who has created all things with the word of his power. He has spoke all things into existence. It's him who rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men. It is Him who has predestined all things from the smallest to the greatest things and events that we find in this world. He has predestined them. And He has done so for the good of His people, but for the exaltation of His praise. And so the psalmist says, praise the Lord. Notice the explanation. Praise the Lord. Uh, this is a, a declaration to the people of God to enter in and to sing praise and glory to the Lord. It's often custom when we have funerals and weddings that we want it all again to be about us. And we forget oftentimes that it's about the Lord. The Lord is at the center of all things that we do as the church. He dwells in the midst of us. He is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's renewing our minds to think His thoughts after Him that He would be honored and glorified in all things. So, praise the Lord. We come this evening to praise the Lord. We go to work and we labor so that the Lord would be praised. We come and we gather again for worship that He might be praised. We serve Him by serving one another as the body of Christ that He might 
be praised. And so the psalmist goes on, he says, for it is good to sing praises uh, to our God. Now, look at that where it says, uh, it is good to sing praises to our God. Uh, that, uh, the, the singing praises there is, is an allusion to, it literally means to strum with the fingers. So what the psalmist is saying here is that we use instruments. They did in the Old Covenant. They use all types of instruments, stringed instruments, to bring praise to the Lord. And so the goodness of singing, something about singing. People love to sing. And, you know, people that don't have good voices, they don't keep rhythm, uh, they're not good in the timing of the songs, uh, they still sing. They sing at different times, maybe when people don't hear them, maybe in the shower, wherever it is, there is something innate within us that we love to be able to sing. Singing makes you feel good. There's a feeling, an emotional high that takes place in songs. How much more when we sing the Lord's praise? When we elevate and glorify the God who has created us and recreated us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a good thing. It's good to sing God's praise. It's good to exalt the one who holds our very breath in his hand. And so it's good to sing praise to our God with that stringed instrument. All kinds of instruments, as I said, in the old covenant that they used. The lyre, the harp, the psaltery. They used different instruments to bring that glory to God. Uh, We use a piano. Uh, At time, we used the organ. All right, and what is the purpose of the piano or the organ? Basically, they have the same purpose, though they're slightly different instruments. What is the purpose? The purpose is that in the piano, it was designed to be able to play all the different varieties of instruments on the different keys from the one end to the other and playing that because it's almost like an orchestra in a box. Well, we can't have an orchestra here on the Lord's Day. We can't have all the different uh, instruments that are gathered together to sing, but we can include it in some degree in a piano, and that's what it's designed for, to play all the sounds of the different instruments. And so we praise the Lord in that way. It's pleasant. Praising God is pleasant. There's something pleasant about it in the soul when you're truly partaking of it. Now, when we're truly partaking of singing songs unto the Lord, we're not concerned about what everybody else thinks about our voice. I'm not singing to you. I'm not singing for you. I'm not auditioning for you. I'm singing unto the Lord that he might be honored and glorified and praised. I want to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And beloved, our voices aren't all the same. Uh, We have an instrument. We have a voice that enables us to be able to sing in some in this pitch and some in this pitch. But together, there is a harmony that goes on as we sing to the Lord. It's pleasant. It's beautiful. It's delightful. It's delightful to hear the people of God singing. Sometimes it's nice to be able just to sit and to listen to the congregation singing. Sometimes it's nice just to hear and not join in with my own voice. It's pleasant. It's delightful to hear that. 
I've been in conferences before where there have been, you know, five, six thousand believers that are there praising the Lord, singing his praise. And it, it was just delightful. It's a uh, goosebump from head to toe, uh, just simply hearing and being involved in something of that nature. Can you imagine what it will be? On that day when all of the people of God are brought together and the throng is praising our God. Can you believe, can you imagine how magnificent the singing will be with the people of God? When we all lift up our voices and none of us have any more sin. Sin has been purged from the soul. And when righteousness and holiness and godliness, godly sincerity out of truth and the fullness of our being, which we are enabled to do, that we are going to sing His praise. It's going to be fantastic. And so you think that it's pleasant now, delightful now. This is a foretaste of what is to come. It's going to be magnificent. Praise is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It beautifies the church when we sing praise to the Lord. Uh, We need to sing praise to the Lord. It's within our very soul to sing His praise. And we sing His praise by rehearsing the works of the Lord. We sing His praise when we rehearse the character of the Lord, the virtues of the Lord, the attributes of the Lord. We are singing His praise. It's good for us to do that. It recalibrates the way that we think when we sing to Him, about Him. He is the subject and the object of our worship. So the psalmist goes on. And notice what God does. He builds up Jerusalem, verse 2. Uh, Jerusalem was in ruins. It's probably post-exilic at this time. Uh, Nehemiah, uh, that time of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And God ultimately is the one who rebuilds. Now, you can think about it in two ways. There is the ultimate and there is the proximate. The proximate. What is the proximate cause of the rebuilding of Jerusalem? The rebuilding of the walls. The reconditioning, as it were, of lifting up Jerusalem again. What is the proximate cause? Is the people of God. They are the ones, as during the time of Nehemiah, uh, with the sword and the trowel. Uh, They built a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other so that they could continue to build and fend off the enemies who did not want them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But the proximate cause is the people of God. The ultimate cause of all things is the Lord, who is the one who gives strength. It is the Lord who gives strength. Read through the book of Exodus and you'll find that it's the Lord who put His Spirit in certain individuals and gave them the ability of artisanship to be able to craft all types of things, gave them wisdom and ability to do that. It is the Lord who does that. And this is the one ultimately who builds up Jerusalem. Notice also what He does is He gathers the outcasts together, the outcasts of Israel. Those that have been spread abroad through a dispersion that goes on. The constant persecution of the enemies driving the people of God. And that's what it means, those driven away. The outcasts are the ones that are driven out. God gathers them all back together. Again, a foretaste of what is going to happen in the future when the Lord brings all His people together from the north, the south, the east, and the west, as Jesus said, and we come to sit down and dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the consummation of all things with our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this not only has uh, the, the, you know, the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, has an allusion here 
of building the church. Who builds the church? It's Christ who builds the church. Jerusalem was just simply a type of the true building, the true temple of God, and that is Christ. And we are the temple of God in Him. That's what you find, types and shadows. And so the rebuilding, the true rebuilding of Jerusalem is the gathering of the people of God together from the Jews and the Gentiles. That's what we read about in Acts 15. It's the gathering of Jews and Gentiles together in one body, a spiritual body, the true Jerusalem. And we are true Israelites in Jesus Christ. He gathers them together, the outcasts. God gathers His people. Christ builds His church. How does He do that? Through the proclamation of the Word. He sends out the messengers of good tidings. And He calls them by name. And He brings them and gathers them up and regenerates and He creates faith within. And He releases the captive. And He leads the captivity captive. And He gives gifts to men. And He brings them into His church, His spiritual body, in union with Him to serve and to honor and to glorify there is a foretaste of that. It's foreshadowed here. Well, the psalmist speaking about the nation uh, or the, uh, the simple uh, city of Jerusalem here, gathering those outcasts together to be a people that worships the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament, we are the people of God. How do you view that, beloved? How do you view the people of God being brought together by the ministry of the Word? And what is your part in that? You know, you have a part uh, to play in all of this. Oftentimes, as I said this morning, that what we do is we come and we partake of the benefits and then we don't give. We just reap the benefits. We want the things that God gives and then we don't contribute. Uh, we're, we are those that are, are receiving and we're not giving. Uh, we need to be those that are giving. Giving not just simply the tithes and offerings, but more importantly, giving of ourselves to one another. God gifts us for that purpose, that you might minister. And so we gather together, and we gather as Christ works in and through His Word, by His Spirit, in our hearts, revives us, stirs us up, so that we might then disperse and go into the corners and the places that He has called us to labor, to be a witness, to be salt, to be light, to let the light of Christ shine wherever we might be, you in your small corner and I in mine. That's your part to play in the gathering up of the church of Jesus Christ. Because he uses the proximate cause of the proclamation of the gospel and the evangelizing of his people to the nations. I mean, again, the book of Acts, it would be a, a good study for us to go through. And how we see that the church turns the world upside down by its doctrine. Why is that? Because they were movers and shakers. They were out in the community. They were out proclaiming the gospel. They were out calling all men everywhere to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's persecution. Yes, there's difficulty. Uh, that comes along with the territory. Yes, you might be ostracized. You might be an outcast. You might be one who is neglected or marginalized or hated. And people say things about you because you live different and a distinct and a, a, di a directly distinct life is how you live. And it rubs people the wrong way. You don't run along with the crowd. There are things that you abstain from because it's contrary to the will of God. And so we go out and we evangelize. We tell people about Jesus. 
We tell them the good news of the gospel. That's how God is gathering the outcasts. That's how he does it. So, he goes on. These are some comforting. And again, think about the praise that is given to him for this reason that he builds up Jerusalem. And for this reason as well that he heals the brokenhearted. The, the brokenhearted right there, that, the, the word brokenhearted literally means hearts that have burst. Uh, hearts that are aching. Uh, bleeding hearts, as it were. Uh, hearts that grieve. Grieving over many things. There are many things in this world that cause us to grieve. Uh, where is the healing found? Who is the one who ultimately can heal the broken heart? It's God and God alone. Uh, We have been fed a lie for many years to think that the medical establishment is the one that can heal your broken heart. Can't heal your broken heart. God alone can heal the broken heart. God alone can restore the joy to the soul. Uh, The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's God's working in us by His Spirit that heals up, that brings healing, that brings binding to the soul. And, And oftentimes we need that. I've needed that many times in my Christian life. Um, And I suppose that as I continue on in this world and in this Christian life, that I'm going to need it many other times as well. You know, again, I, I like to say that if we really think about this, that the strength of the church is its weakness. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. The weakness of the church is the delusion of strength of thinking that we are rich and we are strong and we are clothed in in great clothing and we are mighty and we have no need of anything. Uh, that's That's the true weakness of the church. The strength of the church is truly understanding our weakness and then we're dependent upon the Lord because it's the Lord who truly can bind up the brokenhearted. How does he do that? He does that with the balm, the balm of Gilead, the balm of the gospel. He does that by teaching us through his word that when we go through trials and difficulties and problems in life, that there is a purpose that God has and he will restore unto us. You think about Job and his life and what Job went through. You read at the end and Job received uh, much more than he had before. The Lord had restored to Job. The Lord provides, the Lord gives, the Lord healed up Job's broken heart. How about you? You have a broken heart? You have a heart that's broken that you don't want anybody else to know? Because here it is, we're the delusion of strength. You know, I'm strong in and of myself. I want people to think I'm strong. I have no need of of anything. That's the delusion. We're all weak. We all need the Lord Jesus Christ. We all need Him to bind up the brokenness of our heart. There's no one in here who stands on your own two feet and and you think of yourselves and your pride and arrogance that I'm standing and I have no need of anyone else. No, it's in Him we live and move and have our being. We need Him continually. And beloved, he, He brings that healing to us. He reminds us of the promises. He reminds us of the restoration of all things. He reminds us that He is going to wipe away all of our tears. Does that not then build you up and strengthen you in the Lord Christ? Does that not bring joy to your heart and bring healing to your broken heart? That God is going to wipe away all the tears of our eyes? We have tears in this world. We've cried many times in this world. 
And God is going to wipe away all of those tears. That there is a kingdom that Christ has gone to prepare for us. And in that kingdom, which is preparing, there is no sin ever allowed into that kingdom. It's a kingdom where righteousness dwells. A kingdom that we are thinking about now, but have no understanding experientially of what it means to be in a kingdom of righteousness. I don't know a day in my life without sin. And yet we're headed for a kingdom of righteousness. I don't know a day where there is not some type of grieving or sorrow in the heart. And yet the kingdom that we're heading to, there is no more sorrow. The weeping and the tears are all dried up in joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory is what is imparted to the people of God. What a glorious day that will be. The Lord binds up the brokenhearted. He comforts us. Uh, we, Paul, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1, that he comforts us for a purpose, that we that then might be able to comfort others who go through the same trials, tribulation, and troubles that we go through, that we would comfort them with the same comfort with which God comforts us. So don't waste your suffering. God brings us through brokenheartedness, and he binds up our wounds and our difficulties so that we might be able to reach out to others who go through those same difficulties. I've said this before. I have dealt with uh, numerous women who have had miscarriages. And uh, what I've told them, you know, I've known of women who have gone through miscarriages and, you know, couple of years prior and then one in the congregation as a miscarriage and so I direct this woman to this one here to be able then to comfort her with the same comfort with which God had comforted her see that's not wasting your suffering there is a purpose that God has in all the sufferings that we go through we don't view things rightly that's our problem we're not viewing things through the right lens We start to weep, and why has God done this to me? And it all becomes about me, and it's narcissistic, it's introverted, it's all about, it's not about me. The Lord has a purpose in everything. I'm not the one who gives life. You think about Jacob, and when Rachel, Rachel's womb had been closed by the Lord, and she cries out to Jacob because Leah is having kids left and right. And she's jealous, and she becomes angry, and she says to Jacob, give me children. Jacob says, who am I? Am I in the place of God? I can't give you children. God alone opens the womb. The children are not born by chance. The Lord has a design for all things. And because of sin and fall in this world, uh, this is part of the consequences of living in a fallen world. It's heartache. There's brokenheartedness. God alone can bind that up. Why would we direct anybody to other than the Lord? To find comfort in Him. He is the one who comforts the widow. He comforts the orphan. It's the Lord who brings that comfort. We need to direct people to the Lord. The people of God need to look to Christ to be comforted in all of their heartaches and their wounding that goes on both spiritually and temporally. Because there is that wounding that happens spiritually and affects us physically. And God is the one who can bind those things up. This is the sovereign God. I mean, these, these next verses, I mean, is beyond my, my understanding. I, I mean, how far can you go with this? He counts the number of the stars. Have you? 
I certainly haven't. I've wondered and I've just simply rejoiced in what God has done in the beauty of His creation. I've never been able to count the stars. I don't know anybody that has counted the stars. The billions of stars that God has created. Are there billions or are there billions times 10,000 billions? I have no idea. But the Lord has counted all the stars. There is a finite number of them. It's not infinite. It's not innumerable. It doesn't go on and on and on. Uh, it's just simply a number that's beyond our ability to comprehend. But God, because they are creatures, they are a created thing, uh, they, they're finite. And God has created a finite, as it were, number of stars. But he, He's the one who numbers the stars. He's the one who has numbered the glories that we see in the night sky. And what a wonder He has created. And notice that He calls them all by name. You know, man wants to replicate that, right? And they want to sell a star. And then you can name this star. Uh, God names the star. I don't know what He names them. But here it is right here before you. God calls them all by name. He sustains them. He has created them. Uh, in the Hebrew text, when uh, the Lord says He created, uh, the, the Hebrew term bara always has within it uh, the idea of sustaining what He creates. God upholds and sustains everything that He's created. And beloved, those stars are not there for us just simply to gaze upon their beauty. It's to go beyond them because they are sign indicators. They are pointing us to the glory of the Lord. You ought to look up into the starry skies at night and wonder and be amazed at how wondrous our God is. How awesome our God is. That He has created the billions of galaxies, the stars that we cannot count, and He calls them all by name. And He says, great is our Lord. God is awesome. I reserve that word for God. That's common in our society, and maybe some of you use it. Something will happen, and you'll say, oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's really, that's really degrading the word, isn't it? Because God alone is awesome. How do you describe God? The psalmist says, He is mighty in power. That means that God's power knows no bounds. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Do you remember when the Lord came to Abraham and He said, at this time next year, Sarah is going to become pregnant. And she's in the back of the tent and she giggles. And the Lord says to her, why did you laugh? She's caught in a lie. Right? Oh, I, I didn't laugh. Uh, who, who do you think you're dealing with? This is the omniscient God. The one who knows all things and has known all things from eternity. And His knowing makes the things what they are. Oh yeah, but you did laugh. And next year when, you, when I return, the laugh is going to be on you. And you're going to name your son Isaac, which means Laughter. And he asked her this question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? What is it that the Lord can't do with regards to all of his pleasure? I'm not talking about the sophistry and when people start talking about, well, can God create a rock so big that he can't move it? No, but he can create an idiot like you to ask that question. 
But these people ask these stupid things, you know. The omniscient God is going to create a rock that's so big that he can't move it. It's trying to put you on a horns of a dilemma. You know, he can't do it, that he doesn't have all power and all authority. It's ridiculous. It's stupid questions that people come up with trying to deny the Lord. But God can do all of his good pleasure. God never acts contrary to his nature. Job says, you, O Lord, can do all things. God does all of his pleasure. I mean, these things are too wonderful for us. The psalmist speaks about this in Psalm 119, of meditating upon this on his bed. Now, reflecting upon the things of God. How great and how awesome is our God, who has created all things and providentially rules and reigns, even in the most minute things in this world, things that are even beyond our ability and scope to understand. The depths of the ocean and the creatures that are there. God is the one who is sovereignly ruling. There is nothing in all of the universe that is beyond the sovereign governance of our God. How awesome is that? Ruling and reigning for His glory. That's why the psalmist says, praise the Lord. Sing praise to our God. And so His mighty and power, His great is the one who, that we worship, and His understanding is infinite. When you talk about something that is innumerable, it is so vast it can't be counted. God's understanding, His wisdom, His reason, His skill, His knowledge, none of it can be contained. All of it is beyond our ability to harness. I mean, it's too wonderful for us. As David said, it's too wonderful. You know a word on my tongue before I speak it. It is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. I can't attain to this. How do you understand God's understanding, His knowledge, His skill, His ability, His wisdom is infinite? It's beyond our ability to speak. This is the awesome God that we serve. Beloved, He knows your heart. God knows each and every one of us in an infinite way. He knows things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. Have you not read things before and you groaned inside of yourself and you have that dialogue with your conscience and you didn't even realize the things that were going on in your heart until the Lord revealed them? We're discovering, as it were, things about ourselves as we're reflecting upon the things of God. And the Holy Spirit, through the Word, is opening up our understanding and He's revealing things going on in our heart. It's the Word of God discerning us. God knows us in an infinite measure. Isn't it amazing that He loves us the same? God loves us in an infinite way. He loves us with the love of His Son, Jesus Christ. He heals the broken heart. I ought to be left in a brokenheartedness. I ought to be left without being bound up. I ought to be left in misery. But He has promised to wipe away all my tears. He is the great comforter. He is the creator. He is created. He sustains. But He is the great comforter. He is the one who brings His people together and binds up their wounds and causes them to praise His holy name. He makes us willing in the day of his power. Beloved, this is the great God uh, that we serve. So go back to verse 1. Praise the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray?